Well, way back in 1905, a funny-looking guy named Albert Einstein uh, set forth a very elegantly simple statement in the form of a mathematical equation, and most of you are probably familiar with that. That's the old E equals MC squared. You've probably seen it, seen it before. Maybe some of you have wondered what it meant. Uh, what it means is it actually means that energy is equal to the mass of an object times the speed of light squared. Now, whatever that means, all right? But uh, essentially, it says, kind of in a nutshell, that energy and mass are kind of, or energy and matter are kind of interchangeable. And it's a simple equation, but the implications are very, very powerful. And probably the best known and yet the most horrific consequence of this equation was the atomic bomb, which is actually a powerful machine that converts plutonium into energy in one big, massive, destructive swoop. And our Lord Jesus asked a question, was asked a question by a Jewish uh, leader. And similar to Einstein's equation, Jesus' answer was very simple, but the implications of his answer were very, very powerful. And this simple but powerful statement of Jesus should serve as kind of a litmus test of how we are doing in our Christian faith. Are you and I on target? Or are we missing the mark in our spiritual lives? And we will explore these questions and a number of others in our study this morning of Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. And the title of today's sermon is Christianity Made Simple. And the big idea of today's sermon is that Jesus' simple summary of the law is also a simple summary of the Christian faith. Live it. And before we look at our text, let's look at some background for this text. Jesus is in the last year of his ministry, and the leaders of both of the, uh, the Pharisees as well as the Sadducees, who were the Jewish leaders of the time, are out to knock him off. John chapter 7, verse 1 tells us that after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. And in order to justify their devious designs, the leaders of the Jews were trying to trap Jesus into saying something that would incriminate him. You see, they figured that once they had such a statement from Jesus, that they could find a way to kill him. And they really wanted him dead in a big way. And it kind of reminds me of this picture that I ran across the other day. See, I think this guy's boss wanted him dead in a big way. What do you think? A good way to get yourself killed anyway, if nothing else. And anyway, prior to the passage that we're going to study this morning, uh, the Sadducees had taken a whack at Jesus to try and corner him, and they had not succeeded. And in the passage we're going to look at this morning, the Pharisees set out to do the same thing, and take their own whack to try and trap Jesus. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40 in your Bible, and read along with me. And if you didn't bring a Bible this morning, you'll find one in the seat pocket in front of you. 
But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Now in our study of this passage, first we're going to look at the simple test question that the Pharisees posed to Jesus in verses 35 through 36. Verse 35 reveals that the Pharisee who posed the question to Jesus was a lawyer. But now a lawyer in that day was a little different than a lawyer that we have in our day. Now lawyers in our day, they, they are experts on the law that's passed by the Congress, etc., and they know how to interpret it and all that. But an expert in the law during those days, a lawyer, was an expert on the Jewish law and how to interpret that. And verse 35 reveals that this lawyer was seeking to test Jesus with a simple question. And his intent was that Jesus would fail this test that he was throwing at him. And when you look at the question that the lawyer asked him in verse 36, you kind of end up scratching your head and wondering, well, what was the big deal? What was this test all about? Because the test really isn't explained in the text at all. And the only clue seems to be from the passage immediately following our passage. In Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 through 45, in reply to the test question that the Pharisee sent to him, Jesus fires back a test question all of his own. And let's look at that. He says, now while the Pharisees were gathered together, after Jesus had asked them a test question, Jesus asked them a question. Who do you think that the Christ is? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath my feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And in this passage, Jesus is trying to get the Pharisees to see that the Messiah was not only going to be David's descendant, which they agreed with, they agreed with that point, but also that the Messiah was going to be David's Lord also. You see, Jesus was trying to point out to the Pharisees that he, the Messiah, was both a descendant of David and God. Both of those things. And they had no answer to this argument that he presented. You see, the Jews of Jesus' day believed that the Messiah would be a descendant of David, but that he would be a mighty man, not God. Not God. They believed this based on the, ten command, on the first of the Ten Commandments, which the Lord had given to Israel. And you probably know that first commandment from your Sunday school classes. You shall have no other gods before me, is what the Lord commanded the Israelis. And the way that the, the Jews of that day saw it, 
If, if the Messiah was God, then there would have to be two gods. There would be the God Yahweh who gave the first of the Ten Commandments, and then the Messiah God. And for them, they believe that that situation would be a direct violation of this first of the Ten Commandments. And this is why they always accuse Jesus of blasphemy for claiming to be the Son of God. And working backwards from the question that Jesus posed the Pharisees in this particular passage, it seems that the Pharisees probably expected Jesus to answer to their test question with a declaration about the first commandment, something about like this. And if Jesus had answered that the greatest commandment was, you shall, love, you shall have no other gods before me, then the Jews would have immediately asked Jesus, well, then why are you claiming to be the Son of God? And the Jews figured that they would very quickly and decisively trap Jesus and prove that he was guilty of blasphemy. That's what the test was. And this simple test question that they leveled at Jesus was actually a trap. And that's what they were trying to do. Well, now that we've explored the test question posed by the lawyer in verses 35 and 36, let's look at Jesus' simple answer in verses 37 through 40. And he said to the lawyer, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole of the law and the prophets. Jesus' answer, his simple answer, was actually in two parts. Now first he indicates that the greatest commandment is that you love God with your whole being in verses 37 through 38. And actually this is a direct quote from Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 5. And breaking down Jesus's reply into its component parts, Jesus first tells the lawyer that you must love God. And the love that Jesus specifies here is the Greek word, it's agape. It's the love which expects nothing in return when it is given. It's the kind of love that God has for us. And the Apostle Paul, when he's talking about this kind of love, he sets the bar high. When you look at Romans chapter 5, verse 8, he says this, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. That while we were in complete rebellion against God and we wanted absolutely nothing to do with us, we wanted nothing to do with Him, that God gave His love to us unconditionally in Christ and then He died for us. And this is the kind of love for God that the law commanded. And Jesus further elaborates on what this love is like, saying that this love for God is with all of your heart. And it's with all of your soul and all of your mind. Essentially, Jesus is saying that the law commands a love for God that is, it's all out. 
It's pedal to the metal kind of love. And it involves loving God with every bit of your body, every bit of your mind, every bit of your emotions, and every bit of your will. It's all of those things. The commentator Adam Clark makes this remark about this all-out kind of love that is commanded. He says, By this love, the soul eagerly clings to, affectionately admires, and constantly rests in God, supremely pleased and satisfied with Him as its portion. In verse 38, Jesus says that this commandment is the greatest of the Mosaic Law. It's the centerpiece of the law. It's the Mount Everest of all the commandments. Now I'd like to pose a question to you at this point. Why do you think that Jesus chose loving God as being more important than obeying God or serving God? Why do you think that he chose that as opposed to obeying or serving? More difficult? Sure is. It's impossible. Why? Any other thoughts on why he would have chosen that? I think genuine obedience and genuine uh, uh, behavior depends on love. Hmm. Interesting. Otherwise, it would just be an exercise. <clears throat> okay. Any other thoughts? God created us for fellowship with Him. He did. Fellowship only comes through love. Interesting. So the relationship aspect there. Good. Good thoughts. And you know, when a person loves God like Jesus indicates in this passage, that person will automatically obey Him. They will. You see, Jesus Himself said in, verse, in John 14, 15, that if you love Me, you will keep My commandments. That's just the way it works. And those who love God will keep these commandments effortlessly. And they're, because love is their motivation for keeping these commandments. And if a person loves God like Jesus indicates, then they will serve Him joyously and out of love for Him. But this commandment is not only a centerpiece of the law, it is also a centerpiece of our entire Christian New Testament faith. Consider what Paul says to his chief disciple, Timothy, who is the pastor of the Ephesian church. He says, but the goal of our instruction, Timothy, is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And also consider what the Apostle Paul says is the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22. But the fruit of the Spirit is, first and foremost, love and joy, and peace, and patience, and kindness, and goodness. You see, the great commandment of the Mosaic Law also applies to us, the church. It's not just for the Israel. And to further understand how important this all-out love for God is, consider what Jesus said to a church who had lost this love 
for God. Turn with me in your Bibles way back to the end to Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And read along with me. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, Jesus himself says this. Jesus says, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. And you found them to be false and you have perseverance and you have endured for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. But this I have against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. You see, this was written 40 years after the founding of this church in Ephesus, and the Ephesians had all their doctrine straight. They knew their scripture inside and out, A to Z. They knew it all. And they were zealous to maintain and do the standards of the scripture. And don't get me wrong, all of this is good. This is good stuff. But they had left behind their first love. They had lost their love for Jesus, their affection, their joy, their passion for the nearness of their Savior had been lost. And Jesus says if the Ephesians don't return to that first love, their church is done for. Their usefulness as a church would cease. You see, that is how important that all-out love for the Lord is. It was supremely important to the Lord Jesus. And now that we've looked at the first part of Jesus' answer in verses 37 through 38, let's move on and look at the second part of Jesus' simple answer. In verse 39, Jesus indicates that there's a second part to the great commandment, mainly that you love your neighbor to the same degree that you love yourself. And Jesus said this. He says, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this is a restatement of another portion of the Mosaic Law, and that being Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. And notice that Jesus starts out commenting that the second part is like the first part. Now a question for you all. In what way were these two commandments like? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. In what way are they alike? It's all, it's all about love. It's all about love. That's what it is. There's the connection. It's fairly simple. But also, both talk about the same type of love as how he brought up. It's that agape love. It's that 
all-out, sacrificing, pedal-to-the-metal kind of love that was commanded by us or by Jesus that we'd have that for the Lord. And Jesus says that we're to have that same kind of love for our neighbors. And the word neighbor in the text is really interesting. It actually literally is translated near or close by. That's what it literally means. And our neighbor is anyone that we are in close proximity to. They are the people that we live next door to. They're the people that we work with. They're the people that we go to school with. And guess what? They're the people here, too. They're the people here. It's everyone. It's both Christians and non-Christians that we rub shoulders with. In a similar situation, in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 29, you don't need to turn there, Jesus was asked about what is this love for your neighbor? What is that all about? What does it look like? And in reply, he told the parable of the Good Samaritan. You remember that parable? Where there was the guy who was walking down the road and he got mugged and he got beat up by the robbers and left him for the side of the, at the side of the road for dead. And along comes the Levite. And what does he do? Walks around him, doesn't look at him, goes past him. Along comes another, another fellow, another Jewish, Jewish priest. He walks along, doesn't look at him. And then the Samaritan comes. And he sees the person. And he takes him and he bandages up his wounds. And then he actually pays to have this guy recuperate in a local inn out of his own pocket. And Jesus commented that this, what the Samaritan did was the true meaning of love for our neighbors as we love ourselves. That's what it is. And this commandment of the, of the Mosaic Law also applies to us today. Look at what the Apostle Paul said to the Galatian church in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. He says, So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now notice Jesus' parting comment to the lawyer in verse 40. He says, On these two commandments depend the whole of the law and prophets. You see, Jesus' simple answer, or simple answer to the lawyer's question was an entire summary of the law, but it was also a simple summary of the Christian faith. And much like the two towers that support the Golden Gate Bridge, these two commandments are the central supporting pillars of all of what our Christian faith is about. And for this reason, you probably noticed this, these two commandments can clearly be seen in our own RBC mission statement. Rancho Baptist Church exists to glorify God by making disciples who love God, love others, and live to reach their world for Christ. That's where those came from. Now the only question remaining is, how are we going to apply what we've discussed today? And with that in mind, I would like to challenge all of us, myself included, with a tough question, and that is, how's your love life? And first, 
How is your love life for God? You see, Jesus indicated that this was the single most important thing in the Christian life. And when we get this right, all the other pieces of our Christian life naturally and effortlessly and joyously fall into place. Each day, do you look forward to communing with Him? Does His nearness fill you full of joy? When you have a day off, do you enjoy spending a little bit extra time with Him? Do you long to hear His voice through the Scriptures as you dive into those so that you can love Him more and know Him better? Or like the Ephesian church, has your love for Him dimmed and your Christian walk has become little more than an intellectual agreement with a long list of orthodox Christian doctrine? If you find yourself in that place, then hear again the words of our Lord Jesus to the Ephesian church and do them. Remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. Remember what your first love for Christ was like. Remember the joy of being His friend. Remember the joy of being forgiven for all of that. And the appreciation of that and pray and the joy that you had in going to praise Him and honor Him and worship Him. And then... Repent. Yes, that is what we need to do if we find ourselves in that situation. You see, a cold, head knowledge only relationship needs to be repented of. This is not God's will for His children. And if yours or my relationship with Jesus is like that, We need to humble ourselves before Him and ask His forgiveness and seek Him with our whole heart. And then we need to ask the Lord to revive our love for Him and seek His face and live in His presence all day long. And some of you, even though you're Christians, may have never had this kind of a warm love relationship with the Lord before before this time. Even as a young Christian, maybe you didn't have it. And you're kind of wondering, well, Lou, what do I do? I mean, I've never even had this type of relationship with him. Well, I'd like to offer a few suggestions if you find yourself in that place. First of all, begin reading the Psalms in the New Testament and specifically ask the Lord to reveal how much it is he loves you as you read. And you'll be astonished at how vast God's love is for you. It'll jump right off you at the page. And as you do that, ask the Lord to cause you to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. And be assured, God will answer that prayer because it is according to His will. And you see, as you begin to comprehend God's love in your head, how much He really loves you, it will begin to work its way down to your heart and grow into a deep, warm love for Christ. 
You see, we love because He first loved us. And as we look at how much He loves us, can't help but change our own love for Him. A second question. How's your love life for one another in the body of Christ? Is there anyone in church here that you are at odds with? Is there anyone whom you haven't forgiven? Is there anyone here whom you have hurt and haven't tried to be reconciled with? Go and get those relationships right. Get them mended. Then do it this week. You see, the Apostle Paul said this about loving Christ. He said, if someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Take care of business this week with any damaged relationships that you have in the body of Christ. Get them repaired. And third, how's your love life for the world? And I'd like to ask a favor of all you who are here this morning. Would those of you who have become Christians in the last 12 months be willing to just give me real quickly a quick show of hands, just up and down real fast, and I promise I won't embarrass you. Any Christians who have been Christians less than 12 months? Okay. I'm uncomfortable. I'm uncomfortable with my own, and I have to be honest with you, my own lack of love for the lost. I confess that to you. And I'm also uncomfortable with the relatively small number of spiritual births in our family in light of how vast the darkness in our community is. Yes, there have been quite a number of people that have been saved this year. And that is a big blessing. And that is wonderful. But 85 to 88% of our community is unchurched. Those are the actual figures. And I think all of us, myself included, need to repent and ask God to kindle anew a raging fire of love for the lost in our heart. You see, God possesses a heart like that. He does. And He would love to change our heart to be like His own. And then we need to begin to seek to meet the needs of those non-Christian neighbors that God brings into our lives. And as God brings those people, ask Him to show you what their needs are so that we can reach out and meet those needs. And this is how we become an extension of God's loving hands into the lives of people that don't know Him. That's how it occurs. And as they see God's and they sense God's love through us, then they're much more willing to hear the good news of the gospel. And also ask the Lord to send out workers into his harvest. He's commanded us to do that. And we need to pray that. We need to beseech him to do that as he told us. And while we're at it, we need to volunteer to be one of those workers again. That's what we need to do. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind, first and foremost. And then love your neighbor as yourself. Such a simple but powerful summary of the Christian life and what it's all about. And if all of us begin to live that out, watch out world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we've seen your word this morning and we are reminded anew that this Christian life is all about loving you with every piece of ourselves. Cause us to live in this passionate love relationship with you each and every day. And we would also ask that you would cause us to love with your great love all those who we come into contact with each day, whether they be Christians or non-Christians. Lord, this is our simple prayer. And we ask it so that you would be glorified in us and that the world would come to know you and to love you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.